just speaking out against discrimination and xenophobia, speaking out in solidarity and showing support for the groups that are being attacked online. Those expressions of support and solidarity are absolutely important. Enabled by the devastating new sickness circling the earth, an old sickness, more of the mind than the body, is in danger of going viral at the same time. Professor Tendai Achiumi is the UN independent human rights expert on contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination and xenophobia. And she's been watching an explosion of intolerance alongside the coronavirus that has a long history dating back centuries. I'm Matt Wells and for this special edition of our Lid is On podcast from UN News, my colleague from our Chinese service, Siwen Xian, temporarily based back home while COVID-19 disrupts every aspect of our lives, has been talking to the special rapporteur about how hidden prejudices have been exploited by nationalist politicians and others she describes as entrepreneurs of intolerance to create a frightening new social and political dimension to this pandemic. Suen spoke to Yale-educated Professor Achumi, who was appointed by the Human Rights Council to her key job in November 2017 in mid-April, as the tsunami of infection had rippled from Wuhan to Europe, then striking the US, with New York City, home to UN headquarters, the epicentre of the world's worst pandemic in a century. Certain nationalities or ethnicities have become targets of racism and xenophobia attacks. Maybe my first question would be why did this happen? Precisely at a time when we should unite. You're right to say that it's counterintuitive that at a time when there is so much risk and uncertainty that they would also be targeting of certain groups and what seems like increases in intolerance and prejudice. But I think it has to do with the fact that in emergency situations like these, underlying problems that exist are just exacerbated. Many of these groups are groups that are already subject to latent intolerance and xenophobia and prejudice. So take the example of Asian Americans or people who are perceived to be of Asian descent in the US right now who have been subject to xenophobic and racist attacks in the wake of COVID-19. You can think about, say, Africans who are being subject to various measures in China right now, also in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can think about Roma who are being targeted in different European countries and being accused of spreading the virus and being subject to extreme measures. Many members of those groups can tell you the long history of racial discrimination and xenophobia, even prior to there being a pandemic. These are groups that in general are vulnerable to racism and xenophobia. So I would say we should understand these attacks as laying bare in many places prejudices and biases that are often latent. And in this pandemic, they become even more pronounced. And that combined with the fact that you actually have actors that you might think of as entrepreneurs of intolerance, certain actors, whether they're politicians, whether they're media outlets, seek actually to profit and to exacerbate and to inflame intolerance, jumping into the fray. And here I'm referring to political leaders who've been willing to come out and make statements that are either explicitly or implicitly xenophobic. And in my statement that you reference, I speak of this. The example here in the US of a president who repeatedly referred to the virus as China virus. And you see this happening in different parts of the world as well. This kind of statement at high levels of political office, if you ask me, 
signals an acceptability of stigmatization of specific regions, of specific groups, of people who come from those regions. Presumably, these narratives or actions are very harmful. Absolutely. There's individuals and the groups who are the subject of the racism and the xenophobia because they are of a particular ethnicity, a particular race, of a particular national origin. And sometimes it's because they're presumed to be. So you have examples of Vietnamese people who are being attacked and their attackers are referring to them as Chinese. We're seeing examples in the U.S. of verbal attacks, of social stigmatization. So when you're walking down the street and let's say you are perceived to be of Asian descent, people just, yes, there's social distancing, but there's also those glares and the kind of wide berth that speaks to something racialized taking place. There's been examples of spitting. And then there's also just physical violence, people who are being beaten up because they are presumed to be of an ethnicity or a racial designation that is associated with having spread disease, which we know that this is not how they work. It's not those groups are more prone to the virus, but this is what's happening. In Europe, you have examples of people being denied access to goods and services. And some of the examples that I've been looking at, which were published in the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency, they just had a report out on COVID-19. And there's a section in there that talks about discrimination. And it talks about people of Asian descent or who are perceived to be of Asian descent being refused the right to rent in apartments. People are being refused access to health care. These are just examples. I'm not saying this is everywhere in Europe, but these are examples that are highlighted in the report. They also talk about people of Asian descent being denied access to restaurants, access to schools. This is before some of the measures were implemented. And then in China, Africans being evicted from their residence in Guangzhou, people having their passports seized, denial of access to restaurants. So those are examples of the kinds of harms that individuals and groups are experiencing. I also want to highlight the mental and emotional costs and the fear that these groups have to carry as a result of these attacks. I also want to highlight harm to the broader society. In the face of a pandemic like this, racism and xenophobia actually puts everybody at risk. If you use racial profiling in your public health enforcement, you put your entire population at risk because the virus isn't obeying racial rules. There was anecdotal accounts of people in airports in different parts of the country being singled out for questions about COVID-19, for testing on the basis of appearance. So people perceived as Asian being stopped at airports. I were one of the targets. What should I do apart from feeling scared and hiding? Yeah. The first thing I think is you absolutely have to take care of yourself. The first thing that you have to prioritize is your safety. If you feel safe, it is very important for people who are experiencing attacks or any kind of discrimination or intolerance to report the incidents. And hopefully people are in places where they feel safe to report the incidents to the authorities, to the police, or to whatever mechanism may exist for making reports. Reporting is important for two reasons. One has to do with accountability, but it's also important for creating a record. One of the challenges in terms of combating xenophobic and intolerant and racist acts can be this lack of actionable data. And sometimes that's because communities don't feel comfortable or don't feel safe reporting, or they feel that if they report, nothing will happen. Nothing ever gets done. The person is never really apprehended. Even if you don't think that people are going to be apprehending, reporting creates a record and it really speaks to how pervasive the nature of a problem is. And at least in the U.S., I know, and this may be true in other places as well, there have been also private organizations that have taken on the work of 
trying to document attacks. So if you can't go to the police, it may be that there's an affinity group in your country, in your neighborhood, in your region that may be able to collect information. The Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, for example, has a hotline that they've been using to collect data. And then moving beyond just the individuals who are subject to these attacks, sometimes we think that when racism or xenophobia happens, it has to be the groups that are targeted who have to take the action. Absolutely not. There is a role for everybody. And one thing that we all can do is speak out against discrimination and xenophobia and intolerance. One of the things that can be hardest about intolerance, xenophobia, racism, is feeling as though the world or the broader population or the majority ethnicity doesn't really care about your conditions because they don't speak out when these kinds of incidents take place. So I think showing solidarity, even if it's just on social media, not all problems can be solved by social media advocacy. But I do think just speaking out against discrimination and xenophobia, speaking out in solidarity and showing support for the groups that are being attacked online, those expressions of support and solidarity are absolutely important. For governments, I think that they have to ensure that they have the processes and the mechanisms in place to actually take complaints seriously in order for there to be accountability for these attacks. Where they can be, there has to be places where people can go and policies in place to respond to these kinds of attacks. And so governments really have to commit in this area. And in some places, I'm receiving reports that point to discrimination also at the law enforcement level, including cases where people are being dismissed. You go to report a case of intolerance and you're being dismissed in a way that speaks to racial discrimination within the law enforcement context as well. The media have to take responsibility as well here. There's been some very good media reporting that has attempted to push back on stereotypes and on prejudice, but there's also been some examples of, I think, xenophobic coverage. When there's media coverage of Africans and Africa, likely the kind of coverage that is being, that can dominate, and this is not just in China, but in other parts of the world outside of the continent, there's a way of portraying others that can mean when a crisis occurs, all we have to fall back on are these stereotypes that are in movies and music videos, you know, just like in all over in places that are completely unrelated. And then the final thing I will say is education. I think there's a need for people to educate themselves on the conditions that racial and ethnic minority groups are experiencing, on how these groups are marginalized structurally and systemically, the histories that come along with them, and how inaction itself can be part of a problem. Part of the challenge is getting people to see other people as human beings and then also connect the ways in which you experience discrimination to the ways in which other people experience discrimination. So we've been talking about the treatment of Africans in China. You might think about the treatment of Chinese on the African continent, right? And the yeah, exactly. They should feel, you know, sympathy. And... Exactly! Yeah, but <laughs> some and, people are know, and they just can't. And I think because there's just things that we are exposed to that are supposed to teach us about the rest of the world are not doing a good enough job of making it hard for that kind of a thing, that kind of dissonance to exist. But it's why I keep coming back to education. You know, I really do think that education makes a very big difference if we are relying on stereotypes about each other and where we come from. And some of these stereotypes are really 
deep. These stereotypes about refugees and migrants carrying disease, for example. And usually when we're thinking about migrants and refugees, typically the images that are conjured up in most minds are images of non-white, poor individuals who are moving. And we know that there are migrants and refugees who fall outside of that category, but even the category of refugees and migrants who we think carry diseases are racialized. Why do we think that? You know, what do we see in the media? What do we hear politicians say that reinforce those ideas so that everything we know about science and medicine and the way the diseases are communicated can be suspended in ways that mean we ourselves engage in, in acts that are discriminatory vis-a-vis specific groups? So I think education is absolutely key. And the more we can truly see other people as people, see other groups as full human beings, the harder it becomes to engage in casually discriminatory acts. I would really like to believe that. And if that's not the case, then we're in trouble. Do you think this pandemic will exacerbate racial discrimination or xenophobia, hatred for ethnic minorities, people who are not native in Mm. every country? Do you think the progress we've made in ethnic equality will reverse Mm. because of what happened? I think the answers to these questions are not determined in advance. And I think that it really just depends on the momentum and who's willing to exert the most energy and influence and voice in this period. I mentioned to you earlier that I really do think that there are groups that profit from xenophobia and racism, groups attempting to leveraging this. The countries where leaders have spoken out in xenophobic and racist ways It's part of a larger political project to consolidate power in racial and ethnic terms. So I think there's a leadership question here. I think if we have strong leaders who speak out and who say this is completely unacceptable, if we have communities, and not just the communities that are affected, but even the communities that are not affected and communities that are never affected also have to come out and really speak out and take the kind of action that means we don't go in the direction of racism, xenophobia, getting worse. There is agency here. Nothing is determined. And one of the things that has been heartening for me is seeing all of the acts of solidarity and statements that groups have been making in support of those who are experiencing attacks. There's also been solidarity. It hasn't been all xenophobia and racism. There was a Syrian refugee in Germany willing to go grocery shopping for other groups whose story was being covered. To be on the receiving end of so much intolerance and to turn around and say, I'm going to do all of these things from the kindness of my heart. Those things are important to highlight as well. It can be easy to focus on all of the ways that we can resort to engaging with each other that are so unreasonable and irrational. But then I think we can also focus on radical acts of support and interconnection that are also going on in this time as well. We are capable of radical acts of love in the same way that we're capable of radical acts of intolerance. And I actually think the forces that stand to benefit from intolerance are hoping that all we see are the negative stories rather than the positive ones, because then we end up in that world that is only more intolerant at the end of this process. When a pandemic is over, what can be done in areas such as legislation, policy shifts or advocacy in order to avoid deepening racial divide and backsliding in racial equality and human rights for all? One of the ways to ensure that the next time there is a pandemic, and you have to imagine that this is not a once-off thing, 
that the kind of xenophobia and racism, that that backlash isn't quite as strong, I think, was just investing in fighting discrimination and promoting equality, even outside of the context of emergency situations. So when things go back to normal, those who have capacity should be investing in organizations and in groups that work on combating racial discrimination. In my capacity as Special Rapporteur, I've been stunned at how underfunded, even among human rights groups, and even in the context of international organizations with a commitment to human rights, I've been stunned at how little focus there is on combating racial discrimination and xenophobic discrimination relative to other areas. And so really just investing in that work, even when there isn't a crisis, is going to mean that structures and ways of understanding relations to each other are being maintained even before we get to a crisis point. So I think that's important. Students should be demanding more education on racial and xenophobic discrimination and how to combat it, to push for an education that helps them be more tolerant and more able to live in diverse contexts. Journalists, international humanitarian actors, lawyers, everybody who understands themselves to be invested in, say, the UN system or in a globally interconnected world. I think there is a need, again, to educate ourselves and others on the history and the present of racial and xenophobic discrimination in general, just so that, again, when there are pandemics, it's not coming from out of the blue, but there are structures in place and approaches that understand and connect these exceptional conditions to structures of exclusion that exist post-pandemic, rather than just going back to normal and thinking everything is okay, the question should be, if you're living, say, in Guangzhou, you know, what conditions are Africans living under in my city? And what can I do to make those conditions better? If you are a resident in New York City, ask yourself, you know, what might it be like living here as somebody of Asian descent? And what are the ways in which I can make my community a more welcoming and equitable space for those groups, even not in the context of COVID? So I think that kind of deep commitment is absolutely necessary and we should be pushing back against any kind of sense that there's easy solutions and you can kind of just phone in and out. Honestly, I really think it is about putting in the time to see the kinds of worlds we want to live in. So to go back to where we started with this conversation, I think part of the reason why intolerance and the prejudice has been as pointed as we're seeing it be is because in the period leading up to it, there had been a disinvestment in insisting on equality and non-discrimination and no xenophobia and no racism in public discourse. I think there had just been a disinvestment in that and we're seeing the consequences. Well, that was Siwen Xian in conversation with the UN independent human rights expert Tendai Achiyumi one of the outspoken special rapporteurs who shine a light on abuses throughout the world, in her case, the all-too-present scourge of contemporary racism, racial discrimination and xenophobia that's thriving alongside the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for listening. I'm Matt Wells from UN News. Join us again soon and you can hear more of our podcasts by going to our main website at news.un.org.